Hello everybody, welcome to episode 44 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Tom Major and co-hosting with me as always is Ben Marshall. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, how's it going, Ben? It's all good. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Um, I was just saying before the show, 7am feels quite early now. It never used to. Maybe it's age. Or maybe it's just the fact that I get up later these days. It could be that. Well, it is still the winter. It is winter. Don't get yeah. that natural light, you don't wake up. That's true. It's only just now getting light and we've been on the phone for half an hour. So it's very astute of you. Yeah, my circadian rhythm's all out of whack and you've drawn my attention to it. I, I apologise for having to record a podcast. Uh, <laughs> no. It's a horrible time difference. <laughs> no, I, no I, I mean, I chose the time. I, I wanted to get up early. Um, yeah. What's, um, it's hot where you are, isn't it? In Thailand. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty toasty. How hot is hot? Have a, uh, I would guess, I would guess it's about 33, 34 today, I would, would have thought. Jeez. Is there not a giant board in the research station that says the temperature on it? There absolutely is, but I'm not there right now. And uh. according according to the old Google, 32 degrees. So that's, that's, oh, that's 32 in Bangkok, though. That's not right. 32 in the urban heat island. 30, 36 oh, in man. Porat. So Damn. split the difference and that was pretty on point. Mm, well done. Um, apparently it's also raining, which it isn't. So <laughs> goodness knows what that means. Well, we've had all kinds of crazy snow, which has been quite exciting. But I haven't been sledging or done anything exciting. I've just looked at it and been like, done what an old person does and just been kind of grumpy about it. <laughs> hey man you can't catch snakes in the snow no no i mean i yeah it's gonna be a while before i can catch any snakes but mm. less time by the day so um cool so this week this bye week we're gonna be talking about i guess broadly um occupancy modeling was kind of the the theme of the episode so we're looking at yeah. occupancy um, and detectability yeah, so we're kind of looking at a couple of papers or a few papers about different species and um, kind of modelling their occurrences in different areas. And um, yeah, trying to draw some conclusions about how hard they are to find, which is cool because we're always talking about how hard things are to find. Well, that's one of the biggest problems with studying uh, herpetofauna is being able to find the damn things. Yeah. Uh, you're lucky if you start doing some frogs and maybe you can pick up calls, but when you're dealing with snakes and certainly fossorial species, it's real tough. Real tough. Okay, so to begin with, we're going to talk about two papers by um, Barata et al., one from 2017 and one from 2018. And um, they're all about, they're both, well, one was published in the Scientific Reports, one was published in Journal of Herpetology. But because they kind of follow on from each other, um, we'll just talk about both at the same time. Um, yeah, they're essentially about monitoring, um, optimizing survey designs to detect occupancy changes in a rare amphibian population. That's the first one. And the second one is predictors of abundance of a rare bromeliad-dwelling frog, Crossodactylodes itambe, in the Espinasso mountain range of Brazil. And um, yeah... I guess the first thing would be to talk about this cool little frog. Oh, 100%. Frogs should take centre stage. Yeah. It's got one of these lovely bromeliad 
using frogs. Mm. Which are pretty special. And, and pretty rare. Yeah. The common name is actually Bromeliad Dwelling Frog, isn't it? Um, is and, it? <laughs> yeah. And it's... <laughs> Extremely on the nose then. Yeah. As I said, Crossodactylodes itambe. Um, so the reason it's called itambe is because it was first collected in the Parque Estadual de Pico do Itambe, which is in the Espinasso range in southeast Brazil. Um, it's quite cool. The Itambe summit is the highest point in this mountain range and um, 2,062 meters above sea level. And in the local language, which is Tupi Guarani, uh, Itambe actually means sharp rock, which is a reference to the fact that the top of the mountain is pointy, mm. which is pretty cool. And a ret. And erect. I thought you said and erect. I was like, okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a little frog. It's less than two centimeters long. It's quite round, isn't it? It's quite a squidgy, podgy, round looking thing. Um, I don't, you know what? I don't think I actually looked at a picture of it. Did you not see it? Is... Oh, so I went, I went back to the um, description because um, this frog, I actually had a talk about this frog when I was in Kent from um, Richard Griffiths, who is co-author in both of these papers, who's, I believe, um, Isabella Barata's PhD supervisor, because these were PhD papers. Um, and Isabella actually described this species in 2013 and then went on to study it for her PhD research. So I went and oh, looked... Oh, that's pretty cool. To follow it from, like, beginning to, uh, as we'll understand later, actual uh, conservation assessment. Yeah. And or, Rich- or enough information to get to uh, an assessment. Yeah, exactly. It's really cool. And Richard was kind of saying in this talk he gave us that um, initially he was like, okay, you discover this frog and what? But then because, as we'll see, the kind of bromeliad environment in which it lives represented quite a novel means of studying things like occupancy and abundance. Um, Isabella went And also the frog is hilarious looking. Yeah, it's super cute, isn't it? <laughs> These must they must be tiny. Yeah, they are. They're little little um they're kinda of like grey and gold, aren't they? But they're um Yeah, quite quite muted, steely grey. Mm. Very nice though. Mm. Yeah, but a classic like high altitude species. They live right at the tippy top of this mountain range. Um the area is dominated by rocky mountain meadows, which are called Campus Repestries. And uh probably butchered the pronunciation on that. But they live in these Rapiculus brumeliads. Rapiculus, meaning rock dwelling. Oh, not saxicolus. Not saxicolus. There's another word for for rock dwelling, and it must pertain to plants, perhaps. It's something to do with the roots. I don't know. Didn't go that far into it. But the plant is Vrizia medusa, and um, they're these big old bromeliads. When I think of a bromeliad, I think of a bromeliad in a tree, right? Yeah. No, this is, that's what actually, when I was reading... Uh, the second of these two papers, and it's saying about rocky outcrops. I was, okay, I've got to look these guys up and see what they actually look like. Because, yeah, that's exactly what you picture. You've, okay, you're in South America, you're up the side of a mountain, you're picturing bromeliads high, high, high up in the trees. But no, completely different. And these things are, they're big plants too. Really yeah, big. Yeah. What was yeah, it, yeah. 1.6 to 2.2 metres tall? I mean, that is... Yeah, some that of them big. are much taller than I am. And um, yeah, they've got this like funnel-like central tank, which holds a load of water. And um, yeah, so I looked up Medusa, the species epithet, and obviously it's the 
Greek Gorgon Medusa with the snake hair, which is already cool because it's got snake hair in it. But um, <laughs> it also apparently means to protect in ancient Greek. Now, I can't imagine they necessarily knew about these frogs when they discovered the species, but either way, it's pretty fitting that Medusa is to protect and this is the kind of sole habitat of these little frogs. It's all all rather poetic, isn't it? It is. I quite like that. It's perfect. Um, but yeah, we didn't. I don't know if we necessarily mentioned that, but these frogs live in these giant bromeliads, and um, they hang out in the water collected at the base, kind of half in, half out, um, within these sort of larger rocky meadows at the top of a mountain. Hmm. And what's important is that we don't, or until now, we didn't know very much about them, and higher altitude species. Well, they tend to not have anywhere to go when places warm up and gradients move towards them because you can't go higher up a mountain if you're already right at the very top. So it's pretty critical to find out how these frogs are doing, what sort of risks and threats they're facing, and exactly what they need to survive. And that's really the the, the motivator behind both of these papers, as far as I understand. Yeah, it's a very real thing for species living at the very tops of mountain ranges that when the climate warms, they're either going to have to take cloud forest a little more literally, or they're going <laughs> to potentially go extinct. Yeah, um, between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, well, between a... Yeah, wow, Ben, pow. That's so apt, so apt. Um, <laughs> so yeah, this species only has a range of 0.5 kilometres squared. Um, so worth studying, like you say, conservation concern. And um, yeah, the idea behind what these kind of two papers were doing was to kind of work out, well, broadly, the factors which determine how many frogs were found at each small area, really. Um, mm. And, you know, whether or not they're being occupied or not. Yeah, so the, the first one, I suppose, is the most uh, logical to start with. Because really it's getting into, okay, how do you need to set up a study to successfully pick up uh, changes in occupancy or changes in population? Occupancy is basically where these frogs are inhabiting. If you have a change in occupancy, sometimes it's indicative of, okay, that area where you're losing them, something's changing there in a negative way. What's changing? Okay, that's bad. We need to stop that. And what you want to do is be able to detect that reliably before it's too late. But the whole thing with amphibians and herbet fauna, as I said, it's hard to find them. So it's hard to work these things out. Because usually you need to collect a lot of data before you can see a trend and be confident that it is a trend and not just a, a perturbation, not just a, a natural variation in the population. Because amphibians uh, they tend to tend to be a little bit tricky in that regard because they do have inconsistent uh, population levels that they do uh, there does tend to be uh what's the right word fluctuations yeah they in, wax and wane population. a lot yeah wax and wane that's what i was looking for yeah um yeah you're completely right and um yeah it's important that scientists are able to tell the difference and kind of set a, a limit for what they would perceive to be a natural wax and wane and when that's going to be different from a serious yeah. population decline because i mean you only have to think very briefly about the life history of an amphibian to understand that there'll be years where it sucks to be a frog like if it's super dry 
there's going to be very few places where they can sort of stay and hang out and there's going to be fewer of them and i mean there's entire there's species which um i can't think of an example but there's species which some years they just won't breed and other years they'll just you know be unbelievably prolific so you've got to Mm. kind of be in tune to the sort of um ups and downs of your study animal before you undertake a research study like this or at least sort of bear it bear it in mind because yeah like you say what might be a precipitous decline for a mammal could just be you know yearly variation for an amphibian yeah exactly a bad year and then you layer on top of that is what if you just have a bad year of survey what if you just happen to not find very many frogs they're there you just don't detect them so you've got these two uh, sources of uncertainty in okay it's just natural variation and okay we just got unlucky we didn't find them because that's the real trick is you've got to account for both of these things when looking for a trend so you need to work out how likely you are to find a frog and what's Mm -hmm. nice with these bromeliad dwelling frogs is well you just look in the bromeliads so each bromeliad is one survey essentially yeah bromeliads and these guys do yeah they use them as sites because these frogs are relatively dispersal limited, so they're not going to be changing plant continuously. Because the problem is if they were changing plant, how would you know from one survey to another where you were seeing a different frog or you were just seeing the same frog moving around? You've got to try and account for that. So mm-hmm. these guys had 143 plants picked out randomly. And they went and surveyed them and checked whether there were frogs present or frogs not present. Did they do counting how many frogs there were in this one? Um, they they did for the second paper. They were counting how many frogs they would find in one for the second paper. I think the first one, it was just a yes, no, whether they were there or not. We recorded species presence and absence using adults, juveniles and tadpoles of evidence as evidence of species present at the site. So yeah, they're just looking okay. at presence, absence. It was yes, no for the first one. Yeah. Yeah. So that's going to give you a good idea of exactly where they are and which bromeliads they're liking. It's a more coarse assessment of occupancy because you don't have numbers. But it's much easier to do. It's much cheaper. The assumptions that you have to sort of satisfy are a lot easier. It doesn't require you to ID individuals, which is another trick with certainly Mm. small frogs like this. How would you mark them in a Mm. reliable way? Also, if they are critically endangered or anything like that, you're running the risk of, of harming the animal when you uh, when you capture and uh, tag them. So it avoids a lot of those problems. But you don't get as um, insightful information, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, they did this over two years. Kept revisiting. Got an idea of... Uh, which plants had them, which plants not. And let's say you go to the same plant X number of times. You can calculate from that how likely you are to find a frog in that bromeliad. So if once that they, they found a frog in, so you have a bromeliad, you find a frog in it one time, so you're like, okay, we know that this bromeliad is occupied, with the assumption that occupancy doesn't change over time, right? Yep. So next time you go back and you find the frog again, okay, yep, good. Next time you go back, you don't find the frog. 
Okay, but from those three visits or more visits, you can determine your detection probability. So then when you go to another Brumeliad and another Brumeliad and you don't find a frog, well, you know that you only had a X probability of finding a frog to begin with. 0.67. So, <laughs> well, exactly. In your example. Yeah. So you can only... Basically, it gives you a little bit more ammunition to be able to say, yes, there's a frog there. No, there's not a frog. Because you mm. don't know that there wasn't a frog there because that could have been down to imperfect detection. Yeah. That comes in really handy when you start doing things with things like snakes, which are really hard to find. Um, exactly. Because if you know that your detection probability is like 0.2, so you've got a 20% chance, you know that by the time you visited three times, it's a 49% chance. And if you visit 10 times, it's a 90% chance. So it gives you a measure of certainty that you haven't missed something, which is really, really useful. Well, ex exactly. It's all about being able to detect absence, basically. Detecting presence, you can just do yes, you know... It once you found one, you found one. That's that's okay. But it's the ones that you've got to try and be confident in saying that they're actually absent, which are trickier. Mm -hmm. And these guys, so, well, jumping onto the results, they found that these frogs are pretty easily detectable as a pet fauna go. They had 40 to 60% chance of finding a frog if a plant was occupied. Um, but it wasn't quite that simple because it, it never is. Um, observer, the actual observer that was doing the how much experience that person had, had an impact on how likely someone was find uh, was to find a frog. Mm -hmm. So when you're modelling these things, you've got to not only take into account, okay, this is the probability of finding a frog, but it was X individual with X amount of experience had a slightly lower or higher detective uh, detection probability. And that means if you have someone with basically lower experience and that lower detectability or causing a lower detectability, you need to do more surveys to get that down to be confident that they weren't there yeah. or that you hadn't missed them. Brutal, isn't it? If you suck at it, you've got to work hard. It's the same as everything got, else in life. Exactly. I mean, it doesn't necessarily stop you from doing it, but you just need to visit more yeah. and try it. As, as soon as that detectability drops, you need to put in more effort yeah. And again, we come back to the snake problem. That means a lot more surveying for something that's harder to find. Yeah. And there can be other things which influence detectability. It's not necessarily just surveyor, is it? It's like time of day, time of mm. year. So if I went surveying this morning and tried to find some Escalapian snakes, the detectability of an Escalapian snake today would be lower than low, like beyond low, because they're hibernating. So... If I wanted to go and find an Escalapian snake today, I'd probably have to do 10,000 surveys <laughs> instead of just the average five. <laughs> it, would, or... it would probably never converge, right? That's, <laughs> yeah. that's one of the terms they use for like, it just never gets down to a, yeah. a, <laughs> a that, level that you could... No, you just give up. That's what You'd I'd be thinking up. while I walked around. I'll never converge! <laughs> <laughs> Curse these probabilities. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so... It's worth considering. I mean, obviously, everyone who's surveying for any animal considers the basic, like, life history of the animal, when it will be active. Yes. Well, but then, okay, let's make it a bit more complicated again and say, what if you don't know the life history of these animals? Let's say you're working with a newly discovered bromeliad frog in the tip tops of a mountain range in uh, in Brazil. So this, they surveyed multiple seasons, and fortunately, 
they didn't actually find that the seasons had too dramatic an impact on bromeliad occupancy of these frogs. So Where are they going to go? They live in a rock meadow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the thing. But you could have it where they were deeper in the bromeliad or something like that. They were using it in a different way that modified detectability. So surveys done at a certain time would have... You'd have less confidence in them, basically. Hmm. But as a result, basically the results show that wasn't quite the case. Yeah. Um, what do they see in terms of the amount of they, the amount of effort? Basically, they did the actual practical side of it, but then they also did a simulation side of the study where, okay, given that this is the sort of detectability that we're getting in the uh, in the wild, how much survey effort do we need to be able to uh, detect changes in occupancy? It actually wasn't that Basically, much, was it, was it either? No, really? it wasn't that bad. Yeah, they were they were saying that roughly three visits uh, per site was good enough to get estimates of detectability and occupancy. Yeah. Okay, if you have fewer sites, then that increases. But the other way around, if you have more plants, well, if you go up to something like 150, you might only need to visit a plant twice to get a decent estimate of yeah. overall detectability and occupancy, which... It- these like power really hammers analyses. home. Sorry, go on. Yes, exactly that. It hammers home how sort of good the detectability of these frogs were, and they say as much. This was, this is pretty good for uh, a rare species, um, and unusually high for a pet fauna. Yeah, it goes. So, it really is yeah. good to try and do these kind of power analyses before you do anything else, um, because, I mean, if you can, obviously with this one they had to go out and see. Um, but then once you've done that they needed preliminary data yeah yeah so you've got the pilot study and then with that you can i mean the whole point of this paper was developing this methodology to work out exactly what survey effort is required to detect these changes which they've done so now they can take a step back um you know whoever manages this particular area knows what's required in terms of the the surveying design and they can just execute that um with as little effort as possible and know and be completely assured that they'll have the statistical power to get the results that they require to actually understand whether this species is being adequately conserved. Yeah, critically detecting changes. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. So, I mean, that's pretty much the, 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 the findings of the first study, right? Yeah, it was, it was okay, we've got, a, we've got a study design that works pulling out the sort of detectability and, and yeah, it, it, it is quite pilot study-ish and it's, and it's uh, proof of concept in a lot of ways. Um, it's really nice to have it laid out. It's like, okay, we're going to explicitly investigate how detectability will influence uh, results. Very useful from a practical point because you know, okay, experience people being being better at it. Um, yeah, and most importantly, is it leads us on to the second paper that we mentioned. Yes, it does. And so in this one, it was slightly different because they were actually counting the numbers of frogs and they yep. were trying to get a handle on which variables would well, which habitat variables basically, which site variables. So. Um, 
things like how high it is, how big the Brahmiyad is, what influence these would have on the abundance. So how many individuals are at each particular Brahmiyad plant. And um, yeah, they had pretty good success with that. I mean, we've already talked about the study site. Um, mm. So what they were doing again was they were going out for kind of four or six days in a row every month um, and then giving it a month and going again for four or six days. And they did this for two years, but they're, do you say this was 2015, 2016? I think, yeah, this one's 2015, 2016. The previous one was 2014, 2015. Yeah. And they split the sites into three elevation categories. So it was either high, medium or low elevation. And what they found was that... um, and then they also looked at another uh, a bunch of other variables to do with um, the actual bromeliads themselves and, you know, their, their volume, their size, uh, their kind of water. Volume is their, like, water holding capacity. And, yeah. Um, yeah, what they found was that as you go higher up, at higher elevation, the bromeliads are host to more frogs, which suggests that they like it nice and high up. And obviously, yeah, to a frog... Don't they have- Elevation isn't actually irrelevant. Like they don't really care. They don't, you know, they're not at a high elevation because they like it to be high. They don't, you know, that's not they, something. Well, something no. Radar. If you give them too much oxygen, they could just overreact and <laughs> yeah. uh, they can't handle it. Their little <laughs> little frog hearts explode. But no, that could be a factor. It could be the <laughs> fact that there's tons of oxygen up there. It could be the fact that there's a little bit more rainfall up there. It could be the fact that you know other things are different up there. But elevation is the thing which is used to describe this you know they are fundamentally enjoying it higher and when you look at the conservation of the species it's important to know that this particular you know highest highest elevation is their is their preference well when there was a dramatic like you just don't find them that's what was it under 1815 meters uh elevation they only found four percent of the frogs below that and they were all adults no juveniles, no tadpoles. So that makes you think that that's just the weird, intrepid ones, doesn't it? Just going yeah. a little bit further down, maybe being pushed out or, or you know, taking a bigger risk to find a better bromeliad. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty striking that there's such a... Well, less of a gradient, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how the um, vegetation changes because they don't really go into that, but perhaps there's other stuff going on in and around the bromeliads at lower elevations because obviously these bromeliads are also very tolerant of extreme elevation it'd be interesting to see if there's like a yeah you know just one of those things but um yeah it's difficult to pull apart exactly when when there's two interacting gradients maybe of elevation change and the vegetation change yeah but then they're all tied together and if you just go okay you just model for elevation it's probably taking into account yeah that's it elevation how to describe it and pick out exactly what's important yeah about that elevation change yeah. yeah and yeah and if you model things like i mean if you modeled a lot of um sort of climatic variables you'd probably find that they were really correlated with elevation and you might not need elevation it might be something specific yeah. but like as you say elevation is kind of like a catch-all term for a bunch of different stuff which is fine it can be yeah 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 uh, um yeah so they also found that if the bromeliad had a higher volume of water held within it it would have more frogs inside but they also had presence of water as a variable so they think that actually um it could just be the fact that frogs like water and 
the volume doesn't matter <laughs> that much. Like water. You go to just, water, you find frogs. Yeah, but just like if the if there's more volume of water, there'll be volume there'll be water there more often because it will take more time to dry out, and so mm. frogs just frogs like water as is a surprise to no one. Um, so yeah, wetter better. Well, they uh, also had that point of um, in the dry season, quote unquote, um, the water doesn't tend to disappear. So no. if it has water and it's got enough that it exists all year, then there might not be worries about how much there is, just whether there is, you know, it, it's yeah. consistent. Sounds so chill to be one of these frogs in the dry yeah. season, just hunkering down in your little bromeliad. Nice. They um, they were saying they sit with their bums in the water and their heads out. <laughs> this is like a little in there, frog paddling out, pool. Yeah. Waiting. Yeah. These frogs. It does, it does look like a nice life. Yeah. I mean, your own private bromeliad on the top of a mountain. Yeah. So these crossodactylodes etambe, they are not really good friends to each other. Eighty um, percent of bromeliads contained only one frog. They will tolerate company, but it doesn't seem to be their favourite. Um, they'd much, seemingly much rather be alone. And they well, was also... it one? Was it one frog, or was it specifically adult males? Don't know. In almost 80% of Occumide Brumiliads, we recorded only one adult. It was adults. Okay, so it wasn't adult males. It was just adults. So you mm. could have an adult with a juvenile or an adult with tadpoles or something like that. Okay. Okay, that's good to know. Um, the other thing was that uh, they were less likely to see a frog when there was invertebrates present in the Brumiliad. And they chalk this up to the fact that um, things like spiders and stuff like that would probably eat tadpoles and possibly adult frogs as well. So they tended not to coexist, possibly because they'd been eaten. Um, so you can see the we were talking before we, we started about multi-species occupancy. Yeah, you this said... This would be a perfect opportunity to... Okay, you do a survey for a certain predatory type of spider... Uh, certain pred- uh, and your prey species that so would be your bromeliad frog and see how the two interact yeah because there's obviously things that are going to be influencing spider occupancy which could be shared or counter to what's uh, being used for the frogs i mean that's a whole nother study and way way more work it's not something you just do on a whim multi-species occupancy but those are the sort of questions you can answer by sort of layering almost two studies on top of each other and looking at interactions. Yeah, it's good to think like that, though, because fundamentally, I mean, they, they seem to be collecting the data on invertebrates anyway. So, I mean, all it is is an extra question in the survey form and then some uh, some different modelling when you get home. Yeah, I think it'd be pretty hefty modelling, though, when you get home. I think uh, the more species you add, the more considerably more complicated it gets. Yeah, that's probably fair to say. Um, (laughs) But so, yeah, so I mean, this um, bromeliad-dwelling frog, an awesome little species, and between this brace of papers, I mean, they're extremely well studied, having only been described in 2013. So, yeah, it's definitely a credit credit to all these scientists. I mean, if you're trying to conserve a frog, this is the way to go about it. We know everything now about, not everything, that's a stupid thing to say, but, you know, we know an awful lot. (laughs) We we know a lot more guys than a lot of other species <laughs> yeah roll that out are still data deficient <laughs> roll out we know everything we know everything finish. bring it up 
<laughs> yeah. Um, but no, like we, you know, awesome p- p- brace of papers and um, yeah. yeah, going from describe to this in that amount of time. Yeah, five really, years, really cool. pal. So really, really cool. The love final word is that they recommend the species should be classified as critically endangered. Um, critically hard word to say at this time of day owing to small area extent and the fact that historically people have used controlled burns in the area which could Mm. potentially modify the vegetation structure which is likely to be quite important for this species and um, the bromeliads are big and old so burning them bad 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 (laughs) big and old presumably they're old i mean you don't get to be two meters tall without being at least a bit old unless you're bamboo so maybe they're not old but they i think they probably are old I would imagine them being quite old because you're on a, a mountain um, and that to me just makes me think that they're going to take a long time to grow. Yeah, think how old mountains are. They don't just pop up. No. So, yeah. Crossodactyloides, crossod- I'm going to get that right. Crossodactyloides, crossod- crossodactyloides, itambe. Mm. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, the next paper, Ben, should we introduce it? We're going to start talking about snakes. Yes, yes. Snakes, optimizing monitoring efforts for secretive snakes. A comparison of occupancy and N-mixture models for assessment of population status. Again, published in Scientific Reports. And this one's by Ward, Griffiths, Wilkinson and Cornish. Published uh, last year, right? Correct. No, 2017. Which is the year before last because it's 2019 this year. Yes. No one tell Ben it's 2019. <laughs> <laughs> it's just going to stress him out. <laughs> it's um, just it, it just it's just a number. It means nothing. Yeah. So again, this is another PhD student supervised by Richard Griffiths, um, and his name is Rob Ward. And yeah, um, I don't think we meant to be entirely from the same lab in a in a episode but it has come across that well this uh, all kind of spawned didn't it because i went on the course in kent and i wanted to learn more about occupancy modeling um and then you turned out you were wanting to learn more about occupancy modeling for your work and so then it was like well let's just read a bunch of occupancy modeling stuff and yeah and this paper was recommended to me and then next thing you know we just happened to find other ones that come from the same place yeah and i mean yeah, and I saw the talk and I was like, well, this is cool. I like these little frogs. Everyone should know about these. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a good reason. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's where how we ended up here. So grass snakes. Um, they are very secretive, as the title alludes to. Um, well, we're mm. on Jersey, right? So I think a lot of people worldwide probably haven't heard of Jersey or don't know where it is. Um, it's a channel island between England and France. So it's... Um, an island which is kind of uh, part of UK's government, I think, right? It's an overseas territory, um, but it's really close to France. And it has grass snakes on it. And it's got grass snakes. Matrix Helvetica. Yes, uh, ever since last year when they were found to be a different species, Natrix, Natrix, Helvetica got elevated to Natrix, Helvetica, which is the... Um, Grass snakes that we've got and France has got, the Channel Islands has got. Uh, maybe it swaps over to Natrix Natrix in France, can't remember. Um, but yeah, so they're barred grass snakes. So they're um, these like mostly olivey green type of snake. Uh, they've got a nice yellow collar with a bit of black behind it. 
they've got the bars, hence the name. They've got like little black bars down the flanks. Oh, I thought it was because they weren't allowed in pubs. <laughs> oh, gosh. No. <laughs> <laughs> not tonight, mate. You're not coming in. Slither off. <laughs> no, they, um, they're they're uh, naturally... They can't pay for their drinks because they haven't got any pockets, right? Well, hmm. That's terrible. Yeah. They've, um, yeah, they're related to things <laughs> like water snakes because they're from Nutricidae. So they're, you know, they're wet. They're wet ones. They like frogs and fish. That's what they eat. And the point of this was to identify the best strategy for monitoring Jersey's grass snake population and determine mm. the current population status. So in the UK, we've got this really good citizen science scheme called the Nation- National Amphibian and Reptile Recording Scheme, which uh, is abbreviated to NARS. Um, NARS. NARS. <laughs> and I, in, I do love that abbreviation. <laughs> it's good. It's punchy. And so from 2007 to 2012... They only recorded four grass snakes in the entirety of Jersey. And um, really, they wanted to, the authors of this paper wanted to improve upon this monitoring technique. And so they surveyed the remaining habitat in Jersey over two years, decided how well occupancy models and end mixture models fit their data, and kind of identified the factors which influence species detectability. Um, the whole point of this was that they wanted to kind of calculate the survey effort required to determine whether grass snakes were absent from a site. So they really wanted to know how could they prove that there was no grass snakes there, given the fact that they occur in quite low numbers and they're super sneaky, hard to find. And yep. um, from that, they wanted a number. They wanted to know how many sites they've got a survey to detect a decline in their occupancy. So big picture, how much information do we need to gather to realize when these snakes aren't doing well much like the frogs that we've just been talking about however the situation as we'll see in this paper was much much different because of the difference in the study the focal species and its life history and the fact that as we're always saying grass snakes are super super sneaky as just like other snakes yeah i think the the point to hammer home is you need to do this sort of work you know to to work out what's the minimum amount of effort required for this sort of stuff because funding for monitoring schemes and things is already so tight so you don't want to come in and end up spending too much money on a species and putting too much effort in because there are so many species to monitor and stuff you want to spread that as optimally as possible to make best use of your uh funding and conservation resources, right? That's yeah. all that's what it's really about is optimization. And on a which, fundamental level, minimal yeah. effort is what everyone wants to do all the time anyway. So it's it's just a natural way of things. It's human nature, isn't it? Yeah. Um yeah, so they did two years of surveying as part of uh, Rob Ward's PhD. Uh they surveyed 14 different sites on Jersey. They say 19 in the paper, which is slightly confusing until you get to the methods. Um, and it turns out that each year at a site was independent, so they counted it as 19 sites. But it was actually 14 sites. Um, yeah, I still don't fully grasp how you get from one to the other. Was Were some of them not done both years? Yeah, some were done both years. So it would have been five were done. Five, no, were, done five were done multiple years. years. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a bit confusing. Um, mm, kind of a 
statistical quirk, I guess. Um, I just don't, I don't quite get how that can be justified. Because you're running with the assumption that each site is independent, and they go to great lengths to say how they're independent and the sites uh, are closed. So meaning that there's not going to be much, or absolutely minimizing, the assumption of zero emigration and immigration between sites. Yeah, that really is like fundamentally opposed to the fact that you might count the same snakes in the same place the next year. Yeah, so then you... I mean, you, you've got to assume that going to a site one time and then coming back to the site, that they're not independent. The same population still exists there. The only the only thing I can I can see a way that it can be justified is that the detectability of these snakes is so low, so unbelievably low, that your chances of actually detecting the same individual are next to nothing because you've actually seen such a tiny, tiny proportion of the population. Yeah. And I so guess... it's independent in the sense that it's basically a different population because you've just sampled another one so vaguely. Mm. But I don't I don't know. I don't that doesn't feel very right. No. But... But I mean, I guess it's probably one of those ones where, um, I mean, what was it? They had 51 snake observations of 43 different individuals over the course of 132 surveys where they walked 613 kilometers and flipped over nearly 12,500 artificial cover boards that they'd laid down. So yeah, they really, really struggled to find snakes. Um, So I guess it's probably a case of needs must and the... um, in, it is. It, in in their mind the um the resulting paper which is in many ways a methods paper for um you know detecting and sort of understanding the population or trying to understand yeah, mon- the population monitoring things, the population yeah. yeah of uh of a very very um elusive species so i think yeah it's probably just a case where the the ends justified the means and um i think yeah. so i think you just have to be careful with the conclusions that they are going to be skewed towards those particular well probably not dramatically skewed because it's only four out of four out of uh, what 19 or five out of 19 um but your detection probability and things like that are slightly skewed towards the situation at those sites right because they've essentially been double counted in some ways uh i yeah i mean I, i i think it i don't think it undermines it but it's just a little bit Odd. Yeah. Just let me quick look to see if they've got... Because it's also assuming that the occupancy wouldn't change. No, no, it allows the assumption... It, it, it relaxes that, the assumption that occupancy would be the same. It's a different year to have treated as a different site, so occupancy could be different, and detectability could be different. It's just that it's double weighted in the models because it's two sites when really the detectability between the two is probably more likely to be similar than between it and a truly independent additional site ah yeah okay yeah they do i mean in fairness and i knew this was there because i vaguely remembered reading it but they do say in their um, discussion 
that there's a lot of uncertainty in their abundance estimates because of numerous things. Yes, and they actually yes they do they drew draw draw explicit uh, yeah, um, attention to it. Absolutely, yeah. one is interesting, which is the risk of temporary emigration. So if a snake uses burrows uh, a lot, which seemingly grass snakes do, because they said well that would that one I was a little bit confused about because wouldn't that be integrated into the detectability probability? I think it's like one of those things where um, there's this like underground city complex theory, right? Which is like... Oh, that it's way more extensive than just popping in for an afternoon. Yeah, where they actually might spend significant portions of their existence underground. And then could... I mean, is it is it better to call that emigration in your modeling because they're so infrequently in on the terra firma where you could find them? I don't know. Well, if it's, if it's producing a zero probability during the entire, like, season... Then, yeah. Then, yes. Um, but if there's any chance, which I would imagine there would be a chance, because they've got to come out sometime, They're going right? to bask once in a year, surely. Just because the detectability is negligible doesn't make it zero. But that's one of the that is one of the critical problems with snakes in general is that the detectability problems are so severe. I think you really start. Uh, what do they say? If you get below zero point three, one of the studies, if you get was saying about if you get below zero point three, things start getting a bit complicated. Yeah. Um, and it requires substantially more survey effort. Mm. If you're above zero point five, ah, oh, you're probably doing fine. And even with the Bromeliad frogs, they were saying, once you hit 0.5, diminishing returns. Yeah. You can hit that level, you're probably all right. But yeah. the lower you go, the harder and harder it gets. Yeah. So I suppose that's what that's what they're hitting on, isn't it? That there may be individuals that have a detectability probability that is just next to nothing. Yeah. The other thing they say, they do say in explicitly, back to our original point about the sites, um, they say they're not independent Um the non-independence of sites sampled in both years, which okay. is a limitation of their abundance estimations. So, yeah. Okay, so it's, I mean, it's just, add, they're, they're saying it's, don't take these as solid as you would because there have, have been some violations in the model. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's, mean, that's fine. Yeah, it is. It's completely fine. And um, they basically just said that the N-mixture models didn't really work well um, because, as you say, well, they just had wide confidence limits because... Um, there was so much uncertainty in their estimates, which is, you know, it basically, it didn't work. N-mixture models didn't work for, didn't work well for a species which is super elusive, really low recaptures, things like that. So, yeah. yeah well, would N-mixture models use recapture data? I can't remember. I think that just counts, aren't they? So, um, yeah, yeah the, capture the, mark yeah, recapture would just, work just better, counts. but you'd, yeah, you'd need, well, it actually wouldn't be work better in this, no. in this scenario because no. what they recall one individual. Yeah, but yeah, generally, which is a massive problem. <laughs> yeah. Basically, they just there isn't yeah there isn't a way to reliably using this using surveying they're saying there isn't an easy way to reliably um, detect changes in populations. Mm, yes, so, I mean they basically the the. The suggestion is that the the effort required yeah, is prohibited, has yeah. to increase yeah so dramatically that it becomes yeah un, not particularly feasible. Mm. Um, 
Because even with the amount, I mean, you just said how much effort they had on this. What was it? Several hundred kilometers of transects and yes. yeah, 12,000 artificial cover objects. Mm-hmm. That is a lot of effort. Um, that's hiring someone to do that multiple seasons. It's expensive. And it didn't quite work. Yeah. Because even, what was it, four of their sites, they were saying they didn't have enough revisits to be 80% confident of presence or absence. Or, sorry, true absence. Yeah. Like, okay, you didn't detect anything, but you need more visits to actually be sure about that because the probability of detection is so low. Yeah. And, yeah, that is that is difficult. Very difficult. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, their overall best uh, abundance estimate for how many grass snakes there were across all their study sites was 39, um, which is like half of Jersey. But the confidence interval was really wide, so it could have been between 20 and 169. But as they caught 43, they know there's at least 43. Um, but yeah, so the population of grass snakes on Jersey appears to be quite low. Um, Maybe. Maybe. This is the whole point, isn't it? Yeah. It's because you're so uncertain, it's very tough to say. You can say that there's 43 because you've ID'd those individuals. But... Uh... Yeah. One thing that was interesting about, um, they mentioned in the paper, which is from a forthcoming radio telemetry paper on grass snakes, is that they're concealed underground for 84% of the time, which I think we said earlier. Yeah. Um, that's mad. I would want, I, I'm really curious to know what, the, what that figure is for escalapian snakes that i'm studying because i wouldn't be surprised if it's close to that is that over the entire year or is that during active season i would imagine it's from the active season because i don't think they'd have been doing radio telemetry in the off season but um they don't explicitly so those numbers are essentially higher than that you would presume right yeah yeah well if you take it into account yeah then you've got a much more limited window to survey yeah and, oh man, the problems just keep mounting. It is so difficult to do occupancy and abundance for snakes. And this is in a place that you could use artificial cover objects. Yeah. They don't work in places that thermoregulation is less of a constraint. Yeah, no. Or, to be, to be honest, I don't actually know many of any studies that have explicitly tested that. Well, I've always wondered sure about they, that because I always because thought... Because it still provides cover. You could have something that was sort of thermo neutral as compared to yeah. as compared to a leaf litter floor, like just a piece of pale wood or something, and it would, like yeah. you say, be a moist retreat. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if I found an old door in the forest that someone had just left there in Thailand, and I flipped you it over. I'd be really surprised if there wasn't a snake and a lizard under there. <laughs> well, yeah, certainly geckos and stuff because I mean, those guys are. Yeah, sneaking under bits of dead wood, under logs and things like that. So maybe maybe I'm being too cynical about the artificial cover objects. Maybe they would work in uh, tropical climates. Yeah, going under logs to lick their eyeballs. Yeah, I mean, they love doing that. Mm. So back to the grass snakes. I think the kind of overarching take-home message of the paper was that when you've got really small populations in fragmented landscapes, there can be lots of little sites which are really beneficial to the animals rather than big, large ones. And so if you're interested in conservation, um, you need to understand the occupancy status of these little sites at a point in time. That's important. But also you also need information like 
what these animals need in terms of resource use and what their kind of seasonal movement patterns are. And you need to take a holistic approach to their conservation, which, you know, understanding connectivity and behavior of animals, influencing conservation with those bits of information. That's a good sort of like overall take home message, isn't it? We just need to know lots of different things. Yeah, I think the real trick is you're going to need some proxies to be able to basically there's there's too much you need too much effort to be able to pick up changes reliably uh in this sort of in this sort of population this scenario which there's just not money for so what's your next best thing is to like you say try and understand the fundamentals of what these species need and make sure that's there yeah. and kind of hope that it it follows somewhere that you can assess these these trends maybe that says better places on the mainland that uh, that you can work out exactly what's driving grass snake occupancy and then hopefully that translates to jersey yeah right on so yeah difficult scenario man very difficult yeah very difficult but um i mean if nothing else it's really encouraging because um previous estimates of i mean they'd seen four right four grass snakes in five years yeah and um you know, these guys went out and found 43 individuals. So that's that's good. The the, um, the picture for grass snakes on Jersey is much less bleak than it must have appeared to the people dealing with the citizen science data. So, yeah. Well, and critically, you know, if you see fluctuations in a sort of very basic sample design, don't overreact because there's a lot of uncertainty with a, a limited sample design. So if you do think that something's going on, then, oh my gosh, maybe a, a one year of really intense survey or something. It's, 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 I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough if you did. Yeah. You could always put on the inkling cool. that you were losing stuff. Mobilize the troops. <laughs> Just send out everybody. We need every able-bodied human to look for grass snakes on Jersey now, today. Everywhere. Don't limit it just to... Because this was the other thing. They limited their survey to to areas of suitable habitat too. So this isn't even taking into account the amount of effort that would be required to confidently say an area without grass snakes doesn't have grass snakes. Yeah, they didn't even check It's already skewed towards decent places. Everywhere they checked had grass. So... (laughs) (laughs) So shooing, really. So, yeah, let's move on to the Species of the Bi-Week. Yes, let's do it. So, this week, we've got a new species, and it's a frog. Uh, This is by Ron Kamener, Varela, Yaramillo, and Almeida Ranoso. Published in 2018, a new tree frog from Cordillera del Condor with comments on the biogeographic affinity between Cordillera del Condor and the Guyanian Tepui. Oh, Zookies! Published in Zookies. Yes. Um, right, so. It's a frog. It is a frog. Uh, did you get to grips with the biogeographic interesting thing? I did not get to grips with the biogeographic interesting thing. No, from nor me. But there is a cool new frog in the world. Um, 
just going to gloss over that. <laughs> yeah, it's called Hylascurtus <laughs> hillisi. Um, and it's a boss-looking frog, I would I would say. Um, it's a stunner. Absolute yeah. stunner. It's got, it's got so much character. It's like, if an animal could have a soul, this one would be it. <laughs> They're just yeah. so proud. The one where it's sitting on the moss looks like it's surveying its kingdom. Um, how to describe them? They've got massive... Oh, well, wait a second. That's a different, that's a different species. Oh, sh- that's, uh, that's Dibolus. That's not, it's, it's, is it? It's Tapachalaca. Diabolus. Oh, no, you're right. It is. Hylascurtus Diabolus. Oh, yeah. well, I prefer that one. Should we just talk about that one? It's got a cooler <laughs> name anyway. Hylascurtus Diabolus. And it's got, like, deep red eyes. Yeah. But that's not the frog we're talking about. Our frogs, it's nearly as cool. It's nearly as cool. It is. Hylascurtus hillisi. It's like yep. black or sort of grey with... Um, it's Or of a deep, rich brown. Deep, rich brown. It looks wet, right? Yeah. It looks wet. Like, some frogs don't look as wet as they are. This one looks wetter than it is. Um, <laughs> well, you don't know how wet it is. I can tell, though. Like, I can tell, like, with a second look, you can really see it's not as wet as it looks. Um <laughs> But it's got it's got mental big hands. You can tell it's a tree frog. Those front front grabbers are just vast, and it's got All nice better to climb with. Yeah, nice orange spots on the back. Um, long, long legs. <laughs> All the frogs were showing predicaments on that <laughs> on that figure where they've just turned them upside down. <laughs> um, yeah, they do look, look a little bit little bit sorry for themselves. What's exciting about them? Not the name. They're named after Professor Hillis, who's a professor of herpetology from Texas University, which is fine. Um, grateful for all his contributions to herpetology. Um, what else have we got? Well, they have a claw, right? Oh, yeah, they got the thumb spike. They're basically the they iguana. they got this cool little thumb spike. Of the, yeah. of the frog world. Yeah. Iguana frog. Mm. Um, Beautiful orange eyes. They're from... Orange speckles. Oh, yeah, and the... Um, you know, the, they're the good-looking frogs. The mouth parts of the tadpole were very raspy, weren't they? It's like a... You know, they've got these, like, <laughs> six or seven rows on each lip of raspy things, which maybe looks like they eat algae or something like that. Um, yeah, so this actually, again, the ground was covered in roots, bare soil, and there was lots of ground bromeliads, which is interesting. So maybe mm. these frogs occasionally hang out in a ground bromeliad. Uh, it's a type of cover known locally as bamba. Um, did we say where we were even? Well, only in as much as the, the title. Uh, title. So it's in... Um, a sub-Andean mountain chain, which mm. is in... Oh, okay, so it's in the eastern Andes, and it's part of the international border between Ecuador and Peru. That's why oh, they don't explicitly go. say which country it's in. But yeah, this thumb spike, the prepolex, the prepolex, I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's a, a digit on the inner side of the forelimb, and um, yeah, potentially this frog stabs other frogs with it. Don't know, <laughs> maybe, could be. Maybe. Um, so there's maybe picture, it uses it to open bottles. Who knows? Could could be um, very unusual feat. 
um, and nice habitat photos. Um, I said Maya came into the room while I was looking at the habitat photos. Um, probably looked a bit weird. And um, I said, what do you think that looks like? And she said, it looks like somewhere a frog might live. So uh, they live in, they're living in pretty stereotypical frog habitat. It's like a... Classic frog behaviour. Yeah, it's like a sort of dark, very silty looking little pond with lots of vegetation around it. A few, you know, the vegetation's not high, but um, high enough that but if you dense. were a climby frog, you could have a nice time. Mm. Yeah. I think that's probably enough. We well, we haven't said how big they are. They're only, they're only little. How little is little? Um, like 35, 40 millimetres. They look bigger in the photos. Maybe they are wet after all. It's because they're close. They're closer mm. to the camera, so they look bigger. Some of them are bigger. Is that how that works? Some of them are up to 65. Right on. Mental. So they were probably a bit further from the camera because they look like the same size as the mm. other ones. It's a clever trick. I'll remember that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, the conservation. Conservation, conservation, conservation. Uh, they're doomed. They're... <laughs> Oh god, they are doomed. They're probably doomed. Oh, could I just come on. I hadn't even I hadn't even looked into it, but it's oh, a frog god. high elevation in you know, it's never It's critically endangered, they recommend, because of there's yeah. oh people are trying to mine. Oh god. The habitat's being destroyed. Jesus. What are they mining? What can we boycott? Frogs. Frogs. They're actively mining the frogs. Down a frog mine. Yeah. Oh, I don't know what they're mining in in that part of the world. It'll be minerals. <laughs> Tasty minerals. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's a flat top limestone mountain. So it's actually very similar in a way in that it's rocky and it's mountain to um, the Crassodactylodes that we had earlier. Um, well, it's only just down the road, right? Yeah, eastern montane Same forest. continent. Same continent. Several hundred miles away. (laughs) Yeah, they probably know each other. Um, Yeah, but anyway, this is the new species. Hylascurtus hillisi. Don't know if it has a common name because evidently neither of us really made efforts to read the paper properly, but it's good. Well, I'm I'm supposing it's... uh, I don't think they put a common name, though. I presume it's going to be hills something tree frog or, or hills something mountain frog. Right? Yeah. Surely. Or maybe sometimes they do the common name over the uh, about the actual locality, uh, maybe after the mountain chain, perhaps. Yeah, no, I don't think they mention it in the paper, not that I can find. So, I mean, we'll just have to make one up. Um, I was going with the chocolate freckle frog. Chocolate freckle frog, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> sweet. Um, yeah, so that's the species of the bi-week, which we've unfortunately butchered this week <laughs> uh, hey man we had detectability and occupancy to read about yeah it was like that. yeah there's a lot of work going into the reading of those but um yeah, yeah not to do this paper disservice like it's you know they've described a really cool it's pretty new frog too yeah it's great it's describing thorough. the tadpoles mm-hmm. they're doing the genetic stuff they're doing the morphological stuff yeah and in, it's yeah. pretty thorough yeah, no, it's a good setup, and obviously having the fact that they've uh, identified it should be critically endangered in their in the description, like let's not muck about. This should be, um, you know, range restricted, mining operations nearby. Focus your attention on this. So yeah, it's cool. 
Mm. And with implications for the wider biogeography, which you didn't um, understand. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> bio do what now? So, um, any other business? You got any other business? We got a new Patreon. Uh, yes, that's any other business. So we'd like to say thank you very much to Nick Petropolis, aka Wicked Wildlife. Um, if you haven't seen, Nick does um, YouTube videos which are very entertaining. He's generally grasping an animal which I wouldn't feel comfortable grasping. Um, so I immediately respect him for that. Yeah, entertaining, like just sort of like animal facts. And often he'll come out with something which is um, like if there's something in the news, he'll he'll respond with a video speaking sense about usually Australian wildlife, um, which is definitely to be commended. So thanks very much to Nick. Mm, big thank you. Yeah. Uh, anything else going on? I believe we have some corrections, do we not? Do we now? Don't I, we? I haven't been keeping uh, any correction tabs open. Oh. I usually do. Who's been correcting us? I think there was something about monitor lizards. I think I was talking oh. some nonsense about some monitor lizard I don't know if which it's is likely correction per se but we did have some messages from Skyper uh, what do we got okay yeah so you said something really stupid Ben you blatantly said that it was really rare or something I don't know what was really rare <laughs> no okay um, I don't really know what Scott was responding to man. <laughs> I think it was because I was I was saying basically the Komodos were a weird case. I was saying there were other species that have dispersed much wider. I think I I remember saying something about uh, like Varanus Salvador or something like that that had dispersed mm. widely. That's what um, you're saying. But I remember as I was saying it's like I'm not saying this very clearly. I'm, I'm sort of butchering the point. Let's just move on quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's the best thing to do. Just yeah. sort of misinform so, everyone and then move on. Duck and cover. Yeah, just hide. Yeah, so it looks like Scott's corrected you on that by telling us that there are lots of insular varanus species with small ranges despite having widespread habitat suitability. So there's lots of examples of monitor lizards which could be more widely distributed but aren't. And he says, aren't dispersing. That's the trick. Maybe I was playing it as a Komodos are really weird, but actually they're not as weird as you think because there are actually plenty that are still insular. Right? Yes, that's that's exactly yeah. what that's exactly the point okay. that Scott's making. Yeah. Um he names some examples of Spinulosis, Juxtindicus, Kerulivirens, Uwanoi, Melanus, and Obor, etc. Um What's what's the point that we want to make that uh, Komodos may not be the only example? Yeah. Of dispersal limited, but apparently dispersal capable. Yeah. Uh, Varanids. Yes, that's the point. I think. Yeah. That's definitely the point. Some go, some don't. Why? Who knows? They could. <laughs> and there is the question of actually how much gene flow is actually going on between these insular populations. To begin with, right? There is, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it comes into the whole species delimination problem, I suppose. Mm. Well, Scott does go on to say that many of the species I just named were part of the Indicus group within Varanus, so they've kind of seemingly speciated 
quite rapidly. Um, could be to do with ocean currents um, in the history. So yeah. it might appear that things are easily able to be, uh, to disperse now, but historically they couldn't have. Um, I suppose that's what's nice with the Komodos is that you're not going to mistake a Komodo dragon for another species as such. So they provide a nice case study, whereas something that was all grouped together originally and then split up and actually have been found to be more insular. Okay, they provide more examples similar to Komodos, but Komodos are still an excellent example of a wider pattern. Yeah, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, let's go for that. So, um, Or potentially wider pattern. So thank- sure the, I don't think the same level of work has been done on other species as it has been for Komodo dragons. Well, there aren't Certainly any- not the spatial ecology aspect. No, there aren't really any others that are as cool, so it's only fair that the Komodos went first. <laughs> hey man, if you were going to pick a Varanid to work on, no one's going to blame you for picking Komodo dragons. No. Plus they're big, they're easy to spot, aren't they? That's the major thing. Detection probability? Probably less of an issue with Komodo dragons. Yeah, yeah. probably. More I robust would say. estimates of occupancy and abundance. Yeah, pow. Bring it all back. So, um... Hey. I think that's it for this episode. Would you agree? Have you got anything else? I've got nothing else. Cool. Well, um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Facebook.com slash herphighlights. Herphighlights at gmail.com. Or we're at herphighlights on Twitter. Um, If you would be so kind as to leave us a review on your platform, that'd be great. Um, Like iTunes or whatever you use. Just say something nice about us. Or don't, don't say something not nice. Um, but yeah that would be great it would just help us to get more reach which would be good we'd appreciate that so yeah I reckon thank you for listening yeah thank you for listening and thanks for people who are writing such interesting papers mm. I should I don't say that every time but we should because yeah. a lot of work goes into these things and they're damn good yeah really really good and um, cool that it's all come from Kent as well which is kind of on our proverbial doorstep well, not mine. Well, you grew up in the south of England. Yeah, but I'm not there anymore. So, yeah, but your and doorstep doesn't change. Oh, <laughs> forever tethered. Don't think of it as tethered. Don't think of it as tethered. You're, you know. Okay, shackled. <laughs> Bonded. Emotionally. <laughs> With gorilla glue. Right, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>